This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. My name is Stephanie Creary, and I'm an assistant professor of management at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, and I am so delighted to welcome you to today's episode of the Knowledge at Wharton Leading Diversity at Work podcast series, which is focused on what has really changed for Black women leaders in the workplace. Joining me today are two very special guests. First, we have Dr. Ella Bell-Smith, who is a professor of business administration at Tuck in the field of organizational behavior. Her research focuses on the career and life histories of professional African-American and white women. She is a co-author of the widely acclaimed book, Our Separate Ways, Black and White Women and the Struggle for Professional Identity, which we'll be discussing today. Dr. Smith has served, uh, also served as a consultant to Fortune 500 companies and to many public institutions. Next, we have Dr. Stella Incomo, who is a professor in the Department of Human Resource Management in the Faculty of Economic and Management Sciences at the University of Pretoria in South Africa. Her internationally recognized research appears on diversity, human resource management and leadership and in organizations and has been published in numerous journals and edited volumes. She's also a co-author of the book we'll be discussing today, Our Separate Ways, Black and White Women in the Struggle for Professional Identity. And she is also the past president of the Africa Academy of Management. Stella and Ella, thank you so much for being here today. I am so honored to have you here with me for a conversation really focused on what has really changed for Black women leaders in the workplace. Uh, Now, before we dive into your book, I'm hoping that the two of you might help us reflect a little bit on the last year, especially the movement toward racial equity and justice around the world. And I think this is especially uh, timely given that we're almost approximately a year out from the murder of George Floyd um, and certainly all of the corporate calls to action and commitments to end systemic racism as as many of them had, had worded what they believed they were trying to do. But also in that, the two of you, I like to describe you as organizational behavior royalty. Um, I So much of, of what I do as a scholar and as a, as a professor is informed by the fact that the two of you have been putting out insights in both research and practice um, for a long time. And I know that my interest in understanding race in organizations was fundamentally informed by the work that you have published in, in the academic realm and, and certainly this book as well. So I wanted to start there just to ground us in um, in the moment, but also speak to the fact that you, you two have extensive expertise in issues of race. You've been at this a while. I won't say how many years, but you've been <laughs> at this a while. So I, I'm really curious to gain your perspectives on how this conversation about racial equity has manifested around the world. And certainly the fact, um, Stella, you're you're in South Africa, right? Um, And then Ella, you're here in in the United States. I think this is just such an opportune time to to get a a multinational perspective on this topic. Um, And and certainly to hear more about what this looks like in your respective countries. But I'm gonna start with you, Stella. 
And I want to start with you uh, because something that is continually entered into my head is an insight that you explored in your 1992 uh, Academy of Management review paper. Um, And I love the title of this paper. It's The Emperor Has No Clothes, Rewriting Race in Organizations. Um, And so what has stayed with me since I first read this paper was the idea that race has long been silenced in our scholarship. Now, this is you talking, well, the paper was published in 1992. I don't know when you actually started writing it, but in 1992, you were saying that this topic has been silenced in in academia, in our scholarship, um, and also in society. Um, And then as I'm thinking about the last year, I can just describe it as it's now loud. The conversation around race is, is very loud. And so I'm interested in understanding how you're thinking about the amplification of race and discourse on racial equity as it has manifested over the last year. Uh, Thank you, Stephanie. First of all, let me say thank you for inviting me and Ella to be part of this podcast series. We're really great, happy to talk to people, share our thoughts as uh, you put it politely. You call those pioneers, but, you know, that's just a polite way of saying, hey, these are some really senior people (laughs) in many respects. But uh, but anyway, you know what? I tell you, there's so much going on in my own mind about where we are in terms of the conversation about race. And I was thinking about the idea of, you know, I wrote that paper. It's almost 30 years ago. But of course, one has seen more than 30 years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think I think about like paradoxical forces that are going on and I'm not sure where it's gonna end up. So I think the way I think about it, we're at a very critical juncture. On the one hand, people seem to have the spotlight on race. You know, you see it in the US, if you look at the Black Lives Movement, they say what close to 20 million people of all colors went out and marched and supported Black Lives Matter. The George Floyd murder, you know, was shown repeatedly here in South Africa. It led to protests here. The students in particular talked about the ongoing racism in South Africa, even though this is a majority black country. So yes, the the amplification is loud, but here's what I'm worried about. How long will that amplification last? Mm -hmm. Because we've seen it before. And being, a, you know, I don't mind saying my age, being a 74-year-old woman is sort of like deja vu all over again. Yeah. And, and, and people don't pay attention to history. Yeah. We've had this before. I remember with the civil rights movement, if you remember that, well, some of you don't, maybe. But the civil rights movement, people thought, oh, wow, America is finally turning the corner. You see, in South Africa, people thought when Mandela got elected president in 1994, South Africa is going to become a non-racial free country. And then so the civil rights movement came. It was heightened. Everybody was attuned to it. You had the march on Washington. And then right after that, things went back to the status quo. And then, you know, George Floyd was murdered and we saw that. But remember Rodney King? Yes. And then there were, you know, black people exploded in protest Mm -hmm. and people thought, oh, this Rodney King moment has awakened America to the reality of racism. So, so I worry, 
which side is going to prevail? On one side, you have these positive things going on. Uh, you have corporate executives who can finally say systemic racism right. coming out of their mouths. Right. Will that translate into real change? I don't know. I hope so. I don't know. You have the first black and wom- a color, woman of color mm-hmm. is sitting in the second highest office in the United States. So there's this pot, but then on the other hand, you have the right wing pushback. <laughs> you know, in, in the UK, they want to go back to the real Britain. Yeah. So, so I don't know. All I'm saying is that I worry that yeah. we have these periods of progress and then we retreat back to the status quo of racism and sexism. So that's what I worry about. I am hoping that this amplification will not dim. But I saw something yesterday and I did feel like, you know, you go up and down. Ella and I've talked about it. You know, you want to be optimistic. You don't want to be like the uh, doom and gloom forecaster. But I saw something yesterday about how much the, the support for Black Lives Matter has already declined in the U.S. among white people. For Black people, it has stayed consistent. So that's where I am. These thoughts are just floating around in my head. But we're at a critical juncture. We got to make a decision. Is this the real time? Are we going to stay on this for real now? Absolutely. I mean, so much of what you said resonates with me. So so I was not around for the 60s civil rights (laughs) movement in the U.S., but I was certainly around for Rodney King. And certainly around for the end of apartheid. I was in high school during the end of apartheid. And I remember that. And I remember like the fall of the Berlin Wall, like all of these things that are these human rights and social rights movements. Um, I've, I've seen them and I've witnessed them and I've seen the surge in energy. But I've also, like you, I've seen the valleys. So, I, so we've had the peaks and then we've had the valleys. Um, and not even the valley, because the valley assumes that you're going to rise back up, you know, these periods of just sort of like dead space. Um, and so I, too, Stella, worry a bit about how, how long are we going to at least maintain this level of energy, even though it's dampened a bit, I, I'm, I'm a little worried as well, but trying to be hopeful. Ella, I want to bring you into the conversation, but um, before I sort of ask for you to reflect perhaps a little bit on what Stella is saying, I just want to add a little bit more uh, context around, you know, the things that you've spoken to in your research that I think um, address the current moment, my own experiences as, as a Black woman professor, and I think so many Black professional women have had you know, the types of experiences that you talk about in your 1990 paper, which is uh, called the bicultural life experience of career oriented black women. And so this paper focuses on how professional how black professional women manage to live in what you call two separate worlds, right? This idea of their personal worlds as, as black women who are part of a, a black community and their professional worlds, which you refer to in your paper as as the white world, um, given that many of black professional women are situated in contexts where there are the dominant group of people represented are are white people. So as I think about the current context in your work, I I start to feel like the boundaries between these two worlds have, have blurred quite a bit for black women in the workplace over the past year. Now, I don't know if that sentiment that I'm having is because everybody's looking into my living room via my Zoom camera on a regular basis, <laughs> but it does feel that it's hard to separate out these different worlds. And 
as someone who became accustomed to this separation, living in these two different worlds, I'm telling you, sometimes it's a bit uncomfortable to have this blurring for me. So I, I just wanted you to talk a little bit about how you've been thinking about Black women's bicultural experiences in the workplace over the last year. And, and definitely feel free to reflect on anything that Stella brought up when she was um, sharing her insights with us. You know, uh, thank you, thank you. I'm, I'm delighted to be here too, Stephanie. I need to say that to you. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm so proud of the work you're doing. Um, I wrote that article so long ago that article came out of my dissertation. Wow. That was my dissertation article. Um, and I remember what was at the core of that article <clears throat> was me going into graduate school and not seeing many people that looked like me. Yeah. And wondering if I was gonna, going to leave, if you will, um, the roots of who I was. I'm a girl from the Bronx. Mm -hmm. And um, I was trying to try to make peace. What did this new landscape look like? Um, so in that regard, my research was very reflective at that period and probably still is. Um, a couple of things that I've thought about. I think as we, those of us who are um, working very much on the dominant culture side, <clears throat> I mean, I'm at Tuck, you can't get much whiter than that, to be honest in terms of, 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 of community, in terms of, of people, in terms of uh, ethnicity and, and race. Um, but there's a couple of things that I've, I've, I've noticed um, as you rise up, if you do decide to you know, fight the struggle to rise up in a corporation, um, your, your, your boundaries get extraordinarily um, blurry, as you say. Yeah. Um, the senior leaders, have to have uh, blurry boundaries. And sometimes we're comfortable with that. Sometimes we're not. I, I look at some of the research that's been done now on the term coding. That's about biculturality. As simply by, oh, I code. Well, you know, what, what is that about? Yeah. That is about living in two different kind of contexts and bringing that context in. Um, I laugh because my students, um, and I teach MBA students like you do, um, will tell me sometimes, you know, Professor Bell, you're very black. <laughs> and, and I'm like, okay, wait a minute. What's, what does that mean? And I'm very black. You use black English. Oh, I'm code switching. Okay. Um, yeah. That's because my roots happen to be very, very from a black community. Yeah. Um, I think we have ways of talking about it. We have ways of, of, of living it, but the lines do get do get blurry, um, but I would also challenge people to think about when you're not at work, when you're with your loved ones, your friends, when you're hanging out, when you go home, who's around you? Yeah. What do the people look like that are around you? Okay, mm -hmm. um, when it's family time, when it's church time, mm -hmm. okay? Because those are those moments when America happens to get very segregated. Absolutely. You know, when you think about church, when you think about, you know, who's, who's sitting around your Thanksgiving uh, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving dinner table? Mm -hmm. Who's sitting around? Um, and we we go back and forth. We, we transition from one side to the other because some of these sides are very, very ethnic. And it's definitely um, true for, for white people. 
Yeah. It's very true for white people. Um, they live in a, many of them live in a very monolithic world, which is what's getting us in trouble now because they don't have interactions on the personal side with brown people, with black people. They don't know um, the differences. They don't see the realities because we don't talk about them. Um, <clears throat> connecting to what Stella said and what you were talking about earlier, um, last summer, the riots, uh, or the they called them riots, the protests mm -hmm. um, that folks are busy calling riots. Mm -hmm. What I loved about those protests, that it was like it was like the rainbow. Everybody, absolutely, and it's coronavirus. It's, you know, and and you're still out there, and they're young people, and they get it. And I heard for the first time on television, whites talking about the um, um, reporters talking about white supremacy. And I was like, whoa. Right. <laughs> because, you know, when we were coming up during the protest. Um, and many times we had riots because people weren't allowed to protest. Mm -hmm. um, we were, The anger had to come out some way. So I, I, I have a bone about that word. I really do. So excuse me for digressing. <laughs> um, but the thing that was amazing to me was to see the multi-generational Mm -hmm. um, approach that people came out, the multiracial ethnic ways that people came out. Um, this is a different historical moment. Yeah. I'm not sure we're going to get a different end result, but um, I think there are, I have white people, friends that, that get it. They yeah. really, really get it. So I think the world is getting blurry and I think that's a good thing. I think that's a very good thing. But on the other hand, we still go back into our homelands and our homelands happen to be very, very different. Yeah. They so just are. So two points, thank you so much, Ella. Two points that I just wanted to amplify is one is you're talking about you know, the segregation of our lives, particularly our lives outside of work. And I was just at the gym this morning and every time I go in the gym, it's always very interesting to me is that, wow, this gym is great, right? In terms of the diversity of staff rep, staff who work there, but the clientele is not very racially uh, diverse. So I'm usually one of the only two black people mm -hmm. in the gym, right? So it's our leisure activities, right? And then certainly, you know, I lived in Boston for 15 years and people would talk about sailing and things that, that I've absolutely never even thought about doing. And um, you know, one of the things um, in my research on boards, board diversity, a, a lot of the black board directors I've been talking to have been saying how much um, work they're doing. You know, we used to talk about golf so much, right, as being the, the activity du jour. Right. Exactly. Yep. Now people are talking about sailing and skiing and all these other activities that I think for many black people, unless you went to an elite private school where they, that was the activity that everybody engaged in, um, you know, these are things that you have to figure out how to do as, a, as an adult, or you just decide you're gonna find some other way to connect. So that's, I think about the implications of the segregation of our leisure activities as well. The other thing that I wanted to pick up on is how you, this idea of you know multi generational, multi racial, multi ethnic um, movement over the last year, and, and and where I found some solace in this is I felt that I could sit down sometimes, right? Whereas I think about uh, everything else that has happened up until now, it was like okay, 
lay down, cry about it for a while. You're going to have to get up because, you know, people who are black and brown, especially who are people who are, you know, in professional positions of, of power as a professor can be, um, you have to keep it moving. And, and I felt heartened by the fact that some other people were starting to be more vocal so that I could take a rest for, for just a little bit before I re-energize myself to keep moving. Um, so in any case, um, I just sort of want to- Can I add one thing? Absolutely. <clears throat> I think about the geographic or the geography of our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the research done by um, sociologists that happen to deal with geography, mm-hmm. how people live and all of that, yeah. we're still a very divided country mm-hmm. from a geographical point of view. Class and pedigree changes that, but we're still very much living in particularly poor um, and middle-class African-Americans. They're still very much living in areas that are relegated to the, to, to, to the black community. Yeah. You know, the geographic patterns have not changed that much, quite frankly. Right. That is true. So when you talk about blurring of the lines, the blurring occurs often at work. Right. Okay, not even at school because the schools are resegregating. I live in North Carolina. The schools are resegregating here. Absolutely. Okay. Just, 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 you know. Definitely food for thought. Definitely food for thought. I think about, you know, I live in, in Philadelphia, right? So this is an interesting city on the move. Um, in so many ways, you know, people would call it diverse. Usually people often use that word when they mean there's a lot of black people, right? Right, <laughs> so, right, right. Philly has a lot of black people, right? Because historically this was like one of the first stops after the, the segregated right. South, right? But we know historically, that's why there are so many black African-American people here, not just black of the diaspora, but black African-American people. But there are streets in center city, Philadelphia, that no black people live on, even though all around um, black people live here. And then obviously there are neighborhoods in town, West Philly, North Philly, where their predominant racial makeup are are black African-American people. So even in, and this is not a very big city. So you even see a place like this. And then, you know, Boston lived there a long time. That city is especially, um, continues to be segregated in so many ways. And so the segregation of our lives, I, I would say, makes it difficult to presume that these ideas that we have around who is capable of, you know, achieving. Yeah. To me, it's hard to suggest that we leave that at home. If you're living around people of a certain background all the time and then you show up at work, it's hard for me to believe that all of a sudden when you get to work and you see lots of different people, that you're home life and in who you're sitting around is not going to those experiences, your segregated experiences are not going to inform your interactions. That's how I think about the implications all the time. Stella, wanted to get you back in here, see if you have any thoughts on uh, this conversation that we're having around, uh, you talked about the critical juncture. Uh, you know, we've been chatting a little bit about this idea of the, the boundaries. Are they, are, they, are they firm? Are they blurring? Are they you know, coming in and out? What do you think about this? Well, I agree with what you and Ella have said. I think that you know, in the workplace is the greatest possibility for people of different colors and ethnicities to interact. So that's why I think the workplace would have to be critical to change 
because that's the place where you have most interaction. It's the same in South Africa. But the point I wanted to make about this is that it's funny how, you know, you're talking about the segregation. I was thinking about that Kerner report, that special commission that the government set up after the uh, Rodney King, well, now 1968, when there were uh, protests throughout all of the major black areas. Mm-hmm. And the report had a, a quote in there. I'll probably get it wrong, but it was something like America consists of two worlds, one white and one black. Mm-hmm. And that's, that was the epigraph that they had in the report. So this idea of segregated spaces, although what is what is probably unbalanced is that black people have had to do more work <laughs> to learn how to interact with white people. White people can avoid for a long time having to do that work, mm-hmm. you see? And I think that's that's interesting. I say to my students, what are you doing to learn how to live in a multiracial society when you can still, for the most part, avoid it? Mm-hmm. The last thing I'll say is why then if in fact, as you said, Philadelphia, you have lots of black people, but they're not in power. Right. But the perception of some whites, not all whites, especially the right wing people, is that black people are taking over. Yeah. And so the question is, what is it that we're taking over? Yeah. So, you know, you have this this creeping thing of this. I don't know if you've seen it, this replacement theory. Mm-hmm. That, that, you know, eventually white people are going to be replaced. How can a country like the U.S. where what black people are, what, about 15 percent of the population? So it's just these are things that we have to talk about. This this fear uh, of a black takeover of a space that belongs to us. Mm -hmm. But what does this say about how do we achieve change when people think the space only belongs to one group of people? or the right, the rightful place, you know. And what I want to add in here is, um, you know, I certainly came uh, still of age at a time where when we talked about racial or interracial dynamics, we were fundamentally talking about black and white. So that was the experience of my youth. That was the experience of my, (laughs) of my adolescence of being in college. And then I would say, uh, I can't put a year to it, but maybe in the last decade and a half, um, as we've been talking about some in college, I will say some in college. So we're going back, you know, a couple of decades now. And the idea of how do we talk about race um, and people who are historically marginalized um, and recognize more than black or African-Americans. So when we start talking about people who are Asian or Hispanic, Latino or yeah. indigenous Native yeah. American in the U.S. Right. Obviously, I'm speaking to the U.S. and we talk about South Africa. We'll talk about other categories. And so for me, um, you know, I think that that I'm always trying to when people ask me to make sense of this, like, why is the default black and white? Um, You know, always trying to articulate for people what is unique about that history that we become so entrenched in trying to unpack those dynamics where when we're starting to factor in other racial ethnic groups, such as Latinos or uh, people who are Asian, the conversation shifts. I always like to talk about it as, you know, I think that there is a dynamic of um, when I when I think back to people who I first came across, um, you know, in my youth who were Asian, um, there was a strong identification with an immigrant experience. um, And the same for people who were Hispanic or or Latino. Right. And so 
this sense, you know, in my conversations that I've had was, is it's identifying with an, as an immigrant in your native country is very different than identifying with sort of like the American experience. And I think for many black people in the U.S., African-American people, particularly, there's something about the black white dynamic that is particular to the American experience that is different for some people than the experiences that perhaps Asians or Hispanic Latinos are, are having in the U.S. You know, Stephanie, that said, I'm wondering what you're thinking about. Wait, 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 wait. You, you got me. I'm, I'm awoke now. <laughs> a couple of things come up. I just had this argument with a research team that I absolutely love. I happen to be the only woman of color, um, only black woman on the team. I'm the only woman on the team. Yeah. Uh, we're doing this really great research. And um, these guys know. They, they, they know, okay, they know what the reality is of it is. And we had this conversation about, um, about the different, you know, we were talking about what we could do about African-Americans mm -hmm. and, you know, we didn't want to use the word quota because that gets everybody all upset. Mm -hmm. But then they started, well, what about all the other groups that we do it for the African-Americans? Why do we have to do it for the, you know, you've got to do the Asians and that. And every group has its own form of discrimination in this country. Every minority group and every minority group has its history around um, isolation, around racial hatred, around um, segregation and not being allowed in and being marginalized, marginalized. But here's one thing that is different, which is why we, I think we cannot get off of the black and white reality. Um, first of all, how, African-Americans arrived in this country, how many African-Americans arrived in this country via slavery. Mm -hmm. And then since people don't like to talk about that, that was then, this is now. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't re recognize that the vestiges of slavery are still, the chains are still around in different forms. They've been institutionalized. But when you start looking at the health indexes of, of health, mm -hmm. of uh, housing, mm -hmm of crime, mm -hmm. of education. Let's just take health. Every low indicator for you know child mortality, mm -hmm. heart attacks, stroke, diabetes, guess who's at the bottom of the food chain? Everyone, okay? Education, guess who's at the bottom of the food chain, all right? Mm -hmm. Housing, guess who's at the bottom of the, of the food chain? There is a consistent, um, if you will, a consistent or a perpetual way that African-American people in this country are not surviving in the same way, not thriving, not surviving the same way white people are in this country. And some Latin groups and some Asian groups, okay? So the reality of it is, why do we keep coming out at the bottom? What is happening to our group, if you will, mm -hmm. that does not allow us to get out of the bottom rung? That's the question I think has to be asked because that's where you really see how institutionalized racism is impacting us. And that's why the conversation, I believe, has to stay black and white for a little bit in terms of institutionalization. So I think that's a great segue into talking about your book because your book is focused on black and white, right? And particularly black and white women um, and the struggle for professional identity. 
So the two of you in 2001 co-authored this critically acclaimed book, and in it, you compare and contrast the experiences of 120 Black and white female managers in corporate America, detailing their journeys from childhood to professional success, and the roles that gender, race, and class played in their development. Um, you know, I'm so delighted to know that this book is going to be reissued. I know that this is not, this has been a journey for the two of you in trying to make sure that this moment happened. I believe I signed a petition or two to make sure <laughs> that this book uh, was reissued. So yeah, when's it coming out? When's it? Yeah, we, it comes out August. I found out yesterday still, August 10th. Um, right. Oh, okay, good. It comes out August 10th. Um, yeah, we, we had to push for this. I mean, this was not, a, this was not an easy go. Yeah. I mean, Harvard, the folks are great. Uh, it was like, well, why did you guys write it? Write a new book. It was like, we don't want to write a new book. We want this book back out. Um, I want this book back out because I do think that so much of what's in there, the premise of your book, it's, Time, it's timely, right? It, it was so ahead of our time. Who knew? You're ahead of your time. It's timely. Oh, You're ahead of your time. So, so I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna basically laugh, ask you. Unfortunately, to... unfortunately, it's yeah. sad. I mean, while we're laughing about it, it is so. It's so sad. It really is. So, Ella, share with us a little bit about the premise of your book and why we're you know, laughing about in, in a way that's not funny, but ironic about why we think that this is all still true today. And then if you do think anything has changed since you published the book in 2001, if you can um, tell us, Ella, a little bit about that as well. You're so, giving sorry. me the hard question. Stella, please <laughs> chime in. Um, the, 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 the reality this, yeah, I, I'm the comic on the, on, on the team here. Um, <laughs> I, you know what I want to want to talk about the premise of the book, um, how we came to this book. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to back us up way, uh, way back. Um, I'm 72. Mm -hmm. And I remember my first Academy uh, management meeting and um, I'm standing online uh, to register and you could count and I could even name the black women on, in the Academy. Mm -hmm. And I saw Stella and um, we didn't talk. We didn't connect. She's uh, was HR. I was OB. So we went very different tracks, mm -hmm. but I saw her. And I remember uh, early in my career, when I was an assistant professor at Yale, people kept telling me, well, you've got to meet Stella in Como. Um, this book was a work of love and sisterhood. Um, what people, many people know, but what some people don't know, Stella and I grew up in the same neighborhood in the Bronx. Wow. We went to the same high school. Um, her sister and I, was, her sister was one of my, my dear friends in high school. Um, we have a legacy, if you will. But when we came together around research, we were very, very clear that everything we read, because everything was about the women's movement then. When the glass ceiling was, you know, uh, that was the big thing, the glass ceiling. And there was no indication of, of Black women, what their experiences were. Were they even Black women in corporate America? Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes you just get sick and tired. Yeah. You know, you just say, wait a minute, we know they're there. And, you know, people would tell us, no, they're not there. Um, the premise of this book was to say, not only are they there, 
they are successful there, um, but they have a very different journey coming into the corporate world. They have a very different reality um, once they're in the corporate world, trying to navigate the corporate world. And guess what? They have a very different journey in their relationship with white women because the assumption was women were always kumbaya. We always like each other. We're always, we're, 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 we're caring. Um, and, and, you know, there was the feminine stereotype that all women get together and all women support each other. And we all know that's not true um, amongst any, within any group of women. But um, the divide between Black and white women was so obvious, both in our own uh, careers, in our relationships um, with white women. It was like, mm mm. And I remember we were funded by the Ford Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation. And the Rockefeller Foundation, they were very leery. They wanted us to do, they wanted in our separate ways between black men and black women. And I was like, mm, that's not the story. I said, I'm not telling that, that that's not the story I want to tell, okay? Um, the other thing is if you, if they, if it's research on black managers, New York Times did this unbelievable uh, magazine section on African-Americans in corporate America. Uh, it was fabulous. I think they mentioned two black women. Right. So when you did talk about race in management and executives, they focused on black men. So black women were invisible on the gender side. They were invisible on the race side. Uh, it was like, no, 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 no. This story needed to be tell, told. Now, Stella had tenure. Mm. I did not have tenure. Wow. So I was told constantly, you're not going to get tenure. You, you know, you're not going to, this book is not going to get you where you need to be. Uh, you need to do other articles. You can do your book later on in your career. Um, we had to fight. I mean, mm. we had, people don't realize we had had to fight even when the book came out. I remember I left UNC Charlotte because they wanted the exact word that the chair of the department said to me, well, let's just see if the book has impact. Wow. But we're not going to keep you in. We're, we're going to put you on the teaching side because we just want to see if the book, and that'll take about five years. Okay. And, you know, people who know me know exactly what I said to that. You know, I was like, mm -hmm, I'm out of here. Right. Okay. I mean, it's just, the resistance to trying to do this work. And I know you know David Thomas, who is now the president of Morehouse. Yeah. So he had, he his book had come out. Uh -huh. um, and David, I mean, David supported us. Yes. And, and, and you know, like, we got to get you sisters. We got to get this out. We got to get this out, you know. Um, and then the book sat for what, a year, Stella? Um, uh -huh. We went with um, a big brand name, publisher. Mm -hmm. We're researchers. We don't write like, you know, everyday books. We just don't do that. Um, so it took us a while because they told us they weren't going to publish the book. And it it was our, our white women academic buddies and friends and pals that just, they had a dinner. They surprised us. They had a dinner and we show up and, you know, they're like, you've got to get this book back out. Oh no. And that's when we did the search and David helped us get Harvard as our publisher. That's fantastic. So, I mean, it's, it was not, the first, first version was not an easy journey. It really wasn't. 
So that tells me why you were then, if, if that's all the fight that you had to do for the first version, it was definitely already in you to do a fight to get the second version. You out. don't know my, you don't know my brand as an academic. I thought everybody knew, you know, Joe Palooka <laughs> over here. Nice one. Okay. Stella is the nice one. I'm the one that raises Cain all the time. I'm the troublemaker. Stella, you want to tell us a little bit about your perspectives on the, the book, uh, the content? Uh, what, what are you most proud of about what you all chronicle um, in I, your work? Thank you, Stephanie. I echo everything Ella said. Yes, it was a struggle, but I think we're so happy we were able to tell the story. You see, the other group that we were facing resistance from was the women who were doing gender. Oh. You see? Yeah. yeah, because we were criticizing them. You cannot look at gender by itself, you know. You know, it excludes Black women in many ways. So we were kind of like calling them and saying, look, we have to look at that intersectional space. Mm -hmm. So even though we had feminists and people who were progressive on that, and we even talk about it in the book because we also found that in the book when when, when the black women in the book told us, oh boy, you should see the, our white women colleagues. When anybody starts talking about gender, their eyes light up and they get all animated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when people talk about race, they dim. Yes. So I think we had that same experience. Uh, so, you know, I mean, these are not stories to be told here, but there was something about people not realizing this intersectional space. And so when you want to change the uh, experience or change the possibilities for black women or women of color, you must talk about what does it mean to sit at that intersection? Mm -hmm. You know, so we talk about this concept of gendered racism, mm -hmm. you see, and we do worry about that with this, with this current juncture too, that, you know, even with black lives matter, not to criticize them, they're doing a great job, but you know, you know, Breonna Taylor, falls a little bit in the shadows. Yep. You see? Yeah, so there's, there's still this thing that goes on when people get to that point of trying to make the plight of women of color, Black women visible, mm -hmm. you know, the visibility. So they were in corporate America. And, and the other thing that we had, the other resistance point, Ella, if you remember, when we first started doing the research, we, start, we thought we could go to companies and say, identify the women in your company. We want to interview them. But we soon realized we were like getting pushback from them. And then finally, one of the people I spoke to said, sorry, said, Stella, here's the problem. Here's the problem. You know what? They're afraid that if you reveal the racism and sexism, that they'll be hit by, by lawsuits. Right. So we had to abandon that strategy to get our data. So then we realized we don't need that. Let's go directly to the women. So we went directly to the women and they're like, you know what? No one ever asked me my story. Thank you. Mm. Mm. So I'm thinking um, with the time we have left, I would love for each of you to do at least one of two things. The first is to Give us one of those stories. What what story, whose story, obviously not by their real name, but whose stories um, have are, are sticking with you today um, and why? And then certainly, what do you want to remember about this moment in time? I'm going to give you guys 20 years from now. 
<laughs> what do you still <laughs> remember about this moment in time? So, so oh, like, you kidding me? You are Ella. I'm giving oh, you that at least 20 years. So Ella, oh, why don't you go first? Uh, stories you remember or what you want to remember? One story there. There, there are two stories, and I've got to pick which one um, because they're both very, very, very powerful. Um, I think I'm going to go with the contrast between Black and white women who are poor. Mm -hmm. um, there was one um, woman, two, two women, who came from very, very, very poor backgrounds. Mm -hmm. um, one in the South. The father um, was not, was had multiple um, baby mamas <laughs> and was busy with the other one, had, had abandoned um, the woman that we were interviewing, had abandoned uh, their family. Uh, they were trying to make ends meet. I think there were like six children. Mm -hmm. The mother was trying to make, you know, and the, she went to share crop before she could go to work. Wow. Okay. <clears throat> and, um, she went to school. She had hand-me-downs, um, church hand-me-downs. Um, they had, she had an aunt in the uh, up north. So the aunt would send clothing so that she would have clothing to go to school. And um, she was very, very, very bright. Mm -hmm. And in high school, the principal said, you know, it's time to get college applications out. And she said that, you know, her parents couldn't afford to send her to college and um, she wasn't gonna go and he got his hat and coat and said, come on, I'm gonna take you home today. He sat down with the mother and he said, your daughter is very, very bright. She needs to go to college. I will pay the application fees. We will work with her. We're gonna make sure she goes to college. Um, when it came time, they sent the application in, she got accepted. The church put together a, a suitcase full of new clothing for her to go to college, okay? Everybody in the community, the teachers and everybody worked with her so that she could break the link, okay? The, the, the destructive DNA, family DNA that she was living under. She was gonna be the one to break the chain, all right? Mm -hmm. Take the same story to a poor white girl. Mm -hmm. Uh, the mother dies from cancer. She's living with her stepfather. Stepfather doesn't want her. So the stepfather um, gives her, pawns her off to the aunts. His, his sister, um, her mother's sister. <clears throat> you know what's interesting about when they pawn her off? She's expected to do, clean the house and take care of the kids. Mm. So she's almost like in servitude in going from... Yeah, and she talked about it. You know, I took care of everything. She had a, a little cot that she slept on. Uh, she didn't have a bedroom. There was no clothes. Everybody at school knew what was happening to her. She gets into high school. She is also very, 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 very smart. Okay, the principal, she's valedictorian. She doesn't have money for lunch. So while everybody's eating lunch, she goes to the library to read and to study. Okay? Hmm. She has two outfits. She washes one one day and wears the next one. I mean, she's, 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 she's struggling. Wow. Principal calls her in the office, says to her, there's no way she can afford to go to college. Now, mind you, she's valedictorian. Wow. Okay. Um, and uh, it would be really good 
if she could become a secretary and maybe he could help her get a job somewhere. But, you know, at this rate, the best thing that she could ever do is to find an office job. And, and that's the end of the story for her. Wow. What do these two girls learn? The black girl learns that it takes a village. The black girl learns that she is worthy. The black girl learns, let me keep doing good. The black girl learns, you don't pull yourself up by your bootstraps by yourself. Mm-hmm. You have to look back. You know, you lift as you climb. Mm-hmm. Okay. The black girl learns that she's proud of her community. What mm-hmm. did the little white girl learn from this experience? You better pull yourself up from your bootstraps. Poverty is shame. Mm. I am shamed. Okay. Um, I'm isolated. I'm unworthy. I'm not loved. And I'm going to have to do everything I can to survive. And that's a solo game because nobody's going to lift me up. Nobody's going to sing my praises. And if I don't navigate this by myself, it's going to be an ugly, ugly experience. How we learn about race, how we learn about gender comes from how we live and the values and the experiences and the rituals and the traditions that are passed on to us. You talk about blurring the lines. Mm -hmm. The lines are not blurred. It is very clear where we come from, each of us, and how we learn about race. And everybody has a different story about that. So powerful, Ella. Stella, I'm going to let you reflect for a bit for us on, you know, how are you thinking about your work, um, its relevance to the current moment. Um, Let me give you the chance to share your thoughts with us before we close. I think that, okay. I think our work is quite relevant to the current moment and that's why we were pushing for it to be um, reissued. I think in a couple of ways. I think if companies really want to deal with systemic racism and how they could transform this hierarchy that Ella talked about. You know, the issue, if you look at the stats, I think when we wrote the book in 2001, uh, the percentage of black women uh, in the C-suite was about 1%. If you flash forward and look at it today, Stephanie, guess what? It has grown a whopping 0.3. It's like 1.4%. And so it kind of says, we haven't gone very far. That black women, when you look at the stats are still at the bottom, black women and women of color, I should say, because we have to factor in that. And now what's good now, you're getting data on Asian and Latino women. So this moment I think is a chance for companies if they're serious about understanding systemic racism, we like to remind them, make sure you look at race and gender because you'll never end racism unless you look at how black women or women of color are left behind. You know, in fact, I saw something the other day that was quite striking. They actually admitted it, Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola said they took their eyes off of their training and development and trying to advance uh, black people because they started focusing on gender issues. Right. Yeah, did you see that? It's I didn't see that, but I do know. You have to look at, yeah. So you, you do know it, you know it from experience, yeah. but you have to look at that. So what you see is the number of white women increased very impressively, mm-hmm. but all the black people were left behind, particularly black women. So we hope that our book will give 
uh, people uh, opportunity to really understand what is it like to live, to work and live as a black woman in this current time, because the stories still apply in many respects. So if you want to understand it, and the way we tell the stories is the lived experience of being uh, black women in corporate America. And so we hope that that can resonate with people, but also we try to give some ideas about what they can do if they're really serious about changing the face of corporate America today. Absolutely. So there's just one more issue that I wanted to um, get your insights on before we go. And that's really this question, this opportunity around building alliances between black and white women in the workplace. Is that possible? Is it happening? How do you talk about that in the context of, of your book? Ella, I want to turn to you first. I know you have a lot of passion around this topic, but how are you thinking about alliances between Black and white women in the workplace? Is it possible? What would it look like if they were to be successful? First of all, yes, I do think it's possible. And I am seeing a change over the years. Um, we talked a little bit about allyship in looking at the relationship between Black and white women. Um, but allies are not strong enough. Um, allies can come and go. Allies might support you. They might not put total um, skin in the game, so to speak. I like the term co-conspirators. Mm. Um, it's action-oriented. Everybody's got skin in the game. Everybody is committed to. Um, and it's action-oriented to see a difference, to see a change. Um, I'm looking at some co-conspirators, some white females out here today, and I am just, I mean, I'm just like, wow. Um, I think of Dylan McGee from Makers. Um, they have, their board, have, have they've just turned everything inside out in an unbelievable way <clears throat> where they now have black makers mm -hmm. so that the white women on the board uh, go into their companies. And these are senior, senior, senior women go into their companies and say, we're the black women. Mm -hmm. Okay, they have a black makers. Um, that is amazing. We would not have seen that particular um, happening, if you will, when we first wrote our separate ways. And there are many, many more examples of women who are coming, not just being allies, but being co-conspirators. It's just, I, it just blows me away. And I think we need to get more aggressive, mm. quite frankly. You know, allies is nice and, you know, oh yes, let's be allies. No, this is wartime. <laughs> um, and we need our gear on. And um, you've got to, you've got in, in a diplomatic way, okay, in a diplomatic way, you know, you got to be our diplomatic warriors. Um, but the reality of it is, we need to be able to take action together and to do the process that enables us to get to that point. Stell, what do you think? I think it's great. And see, my dream and see that the thing that puzzles me and Stephanie, you brought it up earlier about, you know, we end up pitting women against each other mm -hmm. and it often advances the dominant group, you know. And so even the alliance, even alliances in terms of expanding out, my dream is that we will learn across the many different women, you know, Latino, Asian, white, black to be co-conspirators, you know why? 
because what happens in corporate America, some people get the seat at the table. And we say this in the book, the black women in the book talked about it. They said that I would like to know that my white colleague, if she has a seat at the table, she brings up the issues that need to be brought up. I'm not there to do it. Will she do it? Yeah. You see? Yeah. So how do we become co-conspirators? So if you get the seat at the table, that you use your voice and power to say, look, what about, what about this? What about this? How come we don't have enough Black women in this company? What about Asian women, Latino women? And that is a powerful force for change. And if we can learn how to do that, I think we would see acceleration and the amplification would continue. But right now, you know, we kind of end up often uh, pitting against one another, which is not good. I love this idea of co-conspirators. And I love this idea of thinking about the possibilities and using your voice when you get that seat. How do you use your voice to fight and to stand up for, for yeah. other people who aren't there yet? And I just, I thank you both so much for all of the insights that you've shared with us today. Um, as I said earlier, you two are absolute royalty from my perspective, true trailblazers in the field. I mean, when there weren't people talking about race and organizations who weren't brave enough to put their careers out there and their voices out there to write about this um, and to fight the fight that you all have had to fight to even publish you know, a book on a topic that today is taken for granted as being important. To me, there's just something very special about, I think, what you all have offered us um, uh, uh, to our scholarly community, I think to the world of practice and certainly to society. So I'm so absolutely honored, uh, Dr. Ellabelle Smith and Dr. Stelm Como that you were here today. Thank you for joining us today. This has been one of the most inspiring conversations I think I've had over the last year that I've been running this podcast series. Um, for me personally, it's been um, important, but it's also been a professional dream come true. So thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. Please, please, please look out for Dr. Smith and Dr. Nkomo's second edition of Our Separate Ways, Black and White Women in the Struggle for Professional Identity, coming to you in August, and get your copy right away. So that is all for now. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for listening to this episode of the Knowledge at Wharton Leading Diversity at Work podcast series. Goodbye for now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.